Frank, I am... I'm so far removed from being a maestro. Isn't that what Bach wrote at the bottom of each, each thing he composed? To God alone be the glory. In Latin, he would write that at the end of each uh, song that he composed. So thank you, Frank, for reminding us that all the glory always goes to him. If you would, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We'll return there to where we were last week in that verses 22 to 37 area where we learned last week that this tells us about Christ's second coming. And then, of course, after our scripture reading from Second Peter chapter 3, uh, you're probably beginning to notice that uh, the subject of the second advent, or that is the return of Christ to establish his physical kingdom, that takes up a considerable amount of real estate in scripture. Uh, it's, it's also referred to as the day of the Lord, as we heard from Peter. And then last Sunday, if you remember, I, I referred us to Daniel chapter 7 and Matthew 24 and Revelation 19 and other passages. And these are just a sampling of all of the references found in Scripture of Christ's promise to come again. Um, it also doesn't take a literary scholar to recognize that these are usually not short and isolated passages or verses. Uh, They are very long and detailed in many cases. In some cases, like Peter, even an entire chapter dedicated to the return of Christ. In fact, if you have read ahead in Luke, in this gospel, Luke actually records two occasions when our Lord spoke and, and, and commands preparations be made for his return. Here we see it in Luke chapter 17, and again later during the Passion Week, as we study that in, in Luke chapter 21. Luke 17 focuses on the imminence, as we spoke this morning with, with uh, Nathan, on the imminence of the return of Christ. It could happen at any moment, and chapter 21 provides somewhat greater detail as to how end times events unfold. Obviously, the day of the Lord, as it is called, it's an exceedingly important doctrine. And yet this passage that we're on today, it doesn't supply a detailed chronology of the progression of the end times. That is very difficult to assemble. Again, as Nathan brought up this morning, we have a lot of material, but the unfolding of it is enormously difficult to predict and to chart. Um, but there are two, two things in this passage, specific principles that, that all genuine Christians must agree on. And we'll find them today. Number one, Jesus is coming. And number two, we have absolutely no idea when. Christ warning his disciples to be ready for that day. It's a recurring theme in his gospel. We listened several months ago as we studied Luke chapter 12, as Jesus told his disciples, be dressed in readiness, remember that? Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, says Jesus, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. 
Mark 13, verse 32, says of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So the Father has chosen a specific day, but it also becomes my impression, knowing Scripture as well as Christ does, that if it were possible to predict His return with specific accuracy uh, from what is written in Scripture, Christ could have done it. Then He says you can't do it. He assures us even He does not know when. And, and if one were to wonder if perhaps now with the unfolding of the entire New Testament, uh, more Scripture being added since Christ's ascension, as the apostles have written, if we were to think that perhaps now maybe there's enough pieces of the puzzle to accurately predict His return, we need to only then listen to Jesus as He advised His disciples immediately before His ascension in Acts 1, verse 7, when they asked, Lord, is that at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed on his own authority. Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times. That is chronos. We get chronology out of it. It refers to a, a very set, specific time. Nor the epochs, referring to Times that are indefinite. Periods that are indefinite. We are, we are not given the privilege to know. We do not know the times which the Lord has fixed on His own authority. Though there is a definite time. There is a time of the day of the Lord. We just don't know when. Um, beware, by the way. There have been some very sincere Christians. Uh, some very intellectual and uh, well-studied theologians over the years, uh, not, not themselves uh, uh, weak in doctrine at all, some very uh, big names of, of very godly people who have embarrassed themselves thoroughly by giving a prediction of the day. Um, I'm not going to bring up any names. I know a couple. Um, we're not talking kooks either. These were very sincere uh, and, and high accomplished theologians. There are normally then a couple ways that Christians respond with error. Number one is they chart out timelines. They chart it out with meticulously in detail as if there is some formula that can be grasped to identify modern events, exactly which ones they are, their signs where we can predict. Um, if there were, then there would be no surprise at Christ's coming. That would pretty much undo everything we're learning here. So there is no way to do that. That would make Scripture a liar. Or there's the other extreme, uh, not recognizing at all that the last times are unfolding right before us as Jesus assured they would. Israel back in the land is, is a, very, um, a very important event in the end times. Uh, Jesus is promised in Matthew 24, verse 5, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Remember we talked about that last week. You will be hearing of wars. Listen to this. You will hear, be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines 
and earthquakes. We've all heard those passages many times. And there have been theologians who have invested years trying to identify which wars, which kingdoms, which famines, and which earthquakes. As some presume that the reason Jesus cited these these events was so that we can create a perfect timeline. Well, he must have told us about these wars, rumors of wars, so that we can identify them in a timeline. But in reality, in reality, the actual purpose of Jesus' discourse was not formulating a timeline at all, but rather this. In the face of terrifying world events, he said it right in the passage I read to you, See that you are not frightened. That is the whole focus when there are wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. They're going to come. See to it that you are not frightened. And that interpretation, and that principle applies to every Christian who has ever lived. Therefore, Jesus' words were often intended by him to be, if I might say, sufficiently vague so that as to apply to every generation of Christians since he ascended to heaven. Every one of them has had the concern of wars and rumors of wars. Every one of them has has experienced probably during their lifetime uh, earthquakes and famines. The application is, do not be frightened. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. We have nothing to fear at all. Um, Sometimes... We make this mistake that we think that the Bible is, well, it's only written to 21st century American Christians. Like this is just for us and and only we're the ones who are are to benefit from it. No, that's not true. From Jesus' assurance that is not for us to know the times or the epics and with the indefinite references that he makes to various world events, it does not appear essential that we know the exact chronology, or the time of his return. What we do need to know, which we absolutely need to know, is that he will return. And that he will judge the world and establish his physical kingdom. Those we must know. In verse 24 of Luke 17, For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. You know, in order to appreciate the thrust of of Jesus' prediction, we need to understand first the Jewish culture, the Greek languages of His day, or the Greek language of His day, the intricacy of that. Do you know what the word lightning meant to Hebrews in the original Greek? It meant lightning. Yeah, lightning. It means as fast as a person can blink. You know, lightning hasn't changed a lot over the centuries, folks. It was the same for them as it is for us today. We can understand this. His return is going to be startling. It's going to come with great surprise. It will be visible like lightning is visible. Remember, he just told his disciples, don't run after people when they say, look here or look there, as we studied last week, to find Christ. Because like the lightning flashes across the sky and shines from one end of the sky to the other, I will return, says Christ, in a manner that all will see. We will know 
when he returns. It seems so that nobody gets confused on the chronology. Verse 25 ensures that the day it's not coming before Christ's crucifixion. He's not talking about something that immediate. Only after uh, Christ says, first he must suffer many things and then be rejected by this generation. His return is going to come uh, long after the crucifixion. In fact, we studied last week, long after the apostles have all died and that era has closed, it's going to be a very long time. And uh, we're, we're counting right now, right around 1986 years, give or take a couple of years. It's been a long time. It will be so long. It will be so long, in fact, that our scripture reading in Second Peter chapter 3 that we read earlier told us, in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. They'll be following after their own lusts. And what will they say as they are mocking? What will they say? Peter says they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation they say. And Peter's response to them, it's both amusing and really quite sobering. Everything, they say, continues as it always has ever since creation. Peter responds to them, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. The mockers declare, all continues just as it has ever since creation. Peter says, no, it hasn't. The reality is that that history has not continued uninterrupted since the beginning. What has escaped your notice, says Peter, is that the whole world was actually destroyed by a flood. Why? Because there were mockers. There were mockers. 2 Peter 2, I told you about how Peter cites the events of Noah in the chapter before we read to you in the scripture reading. 2 Peter 2.5 informs us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher to his wicked generation. As Genesis says, uh, the earth had become filled with violence at that time. So Noah preached God's righteousness and therefore surely informed them that the judgment of God was coming. That's why I have this big boat prepared. It's going to come in the form of rain and a flood. Noah preached righteousness. And we do know that the water cycle, it it reacted, it it behaved differently pre-flood. Before the flood occurred, in case you didn't know, it had never rained. We're told that the ground was irrigated from, from ground pressure from underneath the ground. It had never rained in the day of Noah. No man had seen rain. How do you think that his generation responded when Noah was preaching, rain is coming. Scripture doesn't say exactly, but verse 27 in Luke assures us, well, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage 
until the day Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. May I add, suddenly. I imagine Noah endured some mockery for building a giant boat on dry land when it had never rained. By the way, have you been to the Ark Encounter? Have you had the opportunity to go to that? That is in northern Kentucky. And uh, that, that is an amazing structure. Anyone will tell you who has been there is absolutely amazing. And uh, I know Joel Weiler and Darla have been there. Nathan's been there. I've been there. Uh, Julian, yeah, it's, there's lots of people who have been to this. And uh, it's an amazing structure. It was built by the Amish. And they're carpenters who originally planned to assemble it all using traditional timber framing. Uh, techniques that would involve things like wooden pegs to put joints together and other things. Unfortunately, building codes required that they use steel bolts and, and plates. They had to in order to open it to the public. But their plan was to build it just as uh, they might have before power tools. Someday, if you have the opportunity, you need to go see it. If the Lord opens that door for you. Uh, from the moment I stepped in, I couldn't just help uh, but think to myself, this happened. This really happened. And absolutely happened. Noah built this thing as people outside were marrying and being given in marriage and eating and drinking. And uh, all the way up until that day of judgment came, precisely as Jesus warns us in verse 26, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. Just like that day. People will be carrying about the normal everyday activities of their lives as if it were any other typical day. And then suddenly, judgment will come. I find it fascinating, as I told you, how Peter uses the same two cataclysmic judgments by God as Jesus does when Jesus describes his own second coming. As mentioned previous to our scripture reading, 2 Peter 2 Uh, There, Peter uses the judgments during the day of Noah and that of Lot to signify the the suddenness of God's judgment. Peter says that that day is going to come like a thief. It's going to come out of nowhere. We all know how thieves arrive, right? Suddenly and unannounced. But what is so tragic, what what is so tragic and and true with the gospel, really really it's oxymoronic, it really is, is that before each of these events, people were warned, it is coming. During Noah's day, he had preached to them, believe it or not, even with Lot. In Genesis 19, verse 14, Lot went out and spoke with his sons-in-law, who were uh, were to marry his daughters, and he said, Up, get up out of this place, for the Lord is going to destroy the city. Destruction is coming. Noah himself was a preacher of righteousness in that day to those people. And and as Scripture tells us, the sons-in-law concluded that Lot must have been joking. They said he must be jesting. And portraying that same dismissive attitude as seen by Noah, of that dismissive attitude that was directed at Noah, verse 28 says, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling. 
They were planting. They were building. You know, n- notice that none of these activities is, is itself inherently sinful. They're, they're provided by Jesus to emphasize that judgment came when they were experiencing just a normal day. Building, eating, drinking, giving in marriage, a, a typical routine day. Not different than today. Could be just like today. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning, wrote Peter. But in Luke 17, verse 29, it says, On that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus says, It will be just the same on that day when the Son of Man is revealed. The point is that even though people had been told, even though many had been reminded that God's judgment is coming, people are still going to be exceedingly unprepared for that day, spiritually unprepared for the coming of the Lord. We also see that verses 34 to 36 indicate there will occur on that day a very sudden separation. That we will discuss with more detail next week. One will be taken, another will be left, etc. Um, this particular separation, by the way, it's not describing a pre-tribulation rapture. N- not here. That would have had to have occurred at least seven years or more. At least seven years prior to the coming of Christ, according to classic dispensationalism. Many mistake this text, Luke 17, as the rapture. The pre-trib rapture. It's not. This is clearly judgment on the day of Christ's return. If you don't believe me and you need more evidence, look at your MacArthur Study Bible notes. Then you'll find it there. In fact, no commentaries that I... And I go with pretty reputable and well, uh, well-researched commentaries. Um, none of them identified this as a pre-tribulation rapture. As seen in Second Peter chapter three, this is the day of the Lord that is being described on this occasion. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Emphasizes the suddenness of Christ's return. Uh, so now that we know that that this passage. It's entirely about Christ's return. I want to briefly cite just two more verses. That'd be 31 and 32. Since we now understand uh, that they, verses 31 and 32, are sandwiched in this context. And then we'll look at them again next week. Verses 31 and 32. On that day, what day? Day of Christ's coming. The day of his sudden return. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember, Lot's wife. You know what? At first observation, this is why I want to draw attention to it today. Some might conclude, well, you know, well, there must be then a remaining chance of escape on Judgment Day. Maybe I'll have a little time. I'm in pretty good shape. I move pretty fast. Maybe there'll be just 
a little bit of time left on that day. And they look to Matthew 24 and Mark chapter 13, which each describe a potential flight to the wilderness. They support that idea of maybe we'll have a moment to wiggle out of this. Uh, However, those passages, they more closely align to Jesus' predictions given in Luke chapter 21. Not Luke chapter 17 where we are. Luke 21 uh, describes the days of God's vengeance on Jerusalem when it is, if you'll read Luke chapter 21, trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, falling by the edge of the sword and being led captive into the nations until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That describes a siege on Jerusalem in, in Luke chapter 21. That occurred historically in 70 AD with, with Titus and the Roman army. That is a completely different event from Luke chapter 17. Jesus applies the same imagery, however, a city under siege on multiple occasions in Scripture. Different applications from each one. Luke 21, as I said, most likely describes a Roman siege on Jerusalem fulfilled in 70 AD. That is a type of a siege that will come in the future as well. In Matthew 24, that describes a great tribulation prior to Christ's return. But in Luke 17, this sudden siege, it occurs on the day of Christ's return. In all three places, here's a commonality. In all three places, it signifies a lack of preparation. A lack of preparation. Not a guaranteed path of escape. It signifies a lack of preparedness on those days. Does not guarantee a path of escape. The population during Jesus' Jesus' time knew that typically when a walled city, a fortified city, came under siege by a foreign enemy... Ancient people either did one or two things. They either hunkered down or they fled. Often adversaries could be identified from afar by outposts. Armies are coming. Um, When reports would come back about the size and the threat of the army, that enemy, people would then decide whether they're going to pack up their belongings and get out of town or bar the city gates and hunker down. Folks, it is not a lot different than enduring a hurricane in Florida. That's a fact. They would get an assessment of the threat that is coming, and they would decide, am I going to pack up the minivan and get on out of here, or am I just going to hunker down? Follow me? It doesn't indicate that there's going to be a path of escape. When Jesus said on verse 31 on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. In the context of this passage, Jesus doesn't, isn't implying that you're going to be given an opportunity to gather together your stuff. That, that day is not coming gradually as might a typical siege by a foreign army that you will see coming. Instead, it will come very fast. Like lightning, he says, there will be no warning. No warning at all. There will be no opportunity to gather your stuff 
for flight. The kingdom comes that suddenly. As a Christian, you, you might wonder how this all matters. You know, the day, if, if it's coming, there's not going to be any chance of escape when Christ returns. Uh, why do we need, we as Christians even need to be concerned about this? Why is Christ warning his disciples if there will be no time to make a decision on that day? That is the question that comes up. Uh, if he's surely going to take his chosen with him, one will be taken, another will be left, and there's not going to be any chance to run. Why then does this even matter? How will it affect us as believers? I see at least three reasons. I'll give them to you quickly. Jesus is protecting his flock. He's protecting them against false Christs. He is protecting them against false um, affections. And he is protecting them against false hope. You know, we already learned last week that many will come in Christ's name. Not just to Waco, many other places. Understanding the spectacular imagery of his return ensures that we will not be deceived into following after false prophets in the meantime. We know he's going to come. We know he's not coming to start a, a new movement of latter-day type saints. Uh, we're not anticipating another prophet We look to his imminent return as is promised in his word. Does Jesus represent his return described in scripture as trustworthy? Oh yeah. Yeah, just as it happened in the days of Noah, the same as it happened in the days of Lot, so it will also be in the day of the Son of Man returns. And Jesus unites the certainty the absolute certainty of his return, on the historicity of other literal events found in the Bible. We can know that Scripture is always trustworthy. Uh, that, folks, that affects everything that we believe. Can we believe that judgment has come before? Do we believe that Noah escaped judgment by the word of God and obeying him to build an ark? It affects everything that we believe. This passage also protects his flock against false affections. In Luke 12, verse 29, Jesus told us, And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. Do not keep worrying, but seek his kingdom first, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief, where no thief, as Peter was warning about a thief, no thief comes near nor moth destroys. This reminder of an unpredictable and final return of Christ, it serves to detach every generation of Christian. Every generation detaches us from our stuff. When he returns, all opportunities to invest in his future, in his kingdom, in kingdom building, they'll all immediately be forfeited the day that he returns. You won't be able to say, well, you know, let me just run downstairs. Let me go to my garage. I'm going to gather together a few things. You know, my keys are in the vet. It's already running doesn't matter. There's not going to be time. There's not going to be time. 
That day will come like a thief, robbing us of eternal rewards in God's kingdom. Verse 31 that I pointed you to assures us we are going to leave it all behind. You won't go down from the housetop to grab, grab a few things to get out of town. So Luke says you can choose to send it on ahead, parting with it temporarily, or keep it and be separated from it permanently on a later date. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Next week we'll talk about separation. All kinds of different separation. But third and finally, Jesus is protecting us from a false hope. Jesus assures there's going to be an instantaneous and severe judgment on that day. And we think to ourselves, is fear an appropriate motivation for people to place their trust in Christ? It worked for Martin Luther. That man was terrified of the judgment of God. You read his biography. Um, He was terrified. He had seen all kinds of immorality. He saw his sin in himself. He had a keen sense of conviction. It's one thing that he got right. wasn't a perfect man. He had a keen sense of conviction. He was terrified of the judgment of God. And he suffered torment for years trying to do enough works. He could just do a little bit more. Maybe I could turn away God's vengeance. Until the Spirit opened his eyes as he read Romans 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness that was the passage that changed luther's heart the lord used to change his heart it's much preferred to scare a person into heaven rather than coddling them into hell by far too many have concluded incorrectly that judgment will never come they say jesus just won't do it jesus i believe in he wouldn't do anything like that Like people during Noah and mockers in the day of Lot, today people are comforted by a false hope that judgment upon them will never come. It's a false hope. Like the sons-in-law of Lot, you know, people think we're joking. We aren't joking. Jesus isn't joking. Christians know he's not joking. And Peter warns when Jesus returns the judgment and destruction on the earth is going to far eclipse that of Sodom. Second Peter 3.11 says, Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, you're watchful. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's why he's delaying. His patience is salvation. It doesn't mean he's not coming. You know, Gigi stopped by the office this week. She dropped off some stuff for OCC. And uh, we discussed how a gospel message that does not sanctify, that means it doesn't change someone's life, doesn't make them any holier. Uh, A gospel message that does not sanctify, does not save 
perhaps the greatest value of this entire message that we're still looking at um, next week is when looking forward to Christ's return that we not be deceived by a surrounding culture that tells us, you know, everything's just going to continue as normal. Even though everybody's having a good time. Every, even though people are marrying and giving, marry, giving in marriage all the way up to that day, the wicked will not go unpunished. That's what Jesus assures. Don't have a false hope in a judgment that will never come. Do not be deceived by an offer of a Jesus who saves but will never punish. Jesus says, be ready. Be ready. Peter's last words to the church in his letter are these. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guards so that you will not be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, oh, you're so...